Today's life hack is all over the internet. I think because people are starting to feel totally overwhelmed by their smartphones. If you feel like you're spending too much time on your phone, scrolling through Instagram or reading Wikipedia pages about obscure basketball stars or whatever it is you do online, go into your settings and under accessibility, switch your color options to grayscale. That will prevent those little red notification bubbles from stressing you out. And it might also help you avoid going down an app rabbit hole when you just meant to check the time. We've got more smart tech news on today's episode because everybody's favorite technology editor, Alex George, just got back from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas and stopped by to tell us all about it. Also on this episode, we call Mark Spagnolo of thewoodwhisperer.com for help with door and hinge problems. I get really into making homemade amaro, which is delicious. And Peter and Lara try out two new pairs of slippers. If you're really stressed out about your smartphone use, y'all, you can always kick back, relax, and put on a podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Detweiler, and this is the most useful podcast ever. So we have with us Mark Spagnolo, who is from the woodwhisperer.com, which was one of our best DIY video channels. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So the reason we called you is because Kevin and I are bad at doors. We both have this problem, we bo- right? We both have door problems. Yeah. <laughs> what a coincidence. In my case... In my apartment, there's this door. It's like a cupboard, almost like a cupola sort of thing that's attached to the wall. And I wanted to paint it an accent color. And in doing that, it's an old apartment. The hinges had been painted over multiple, multiple times. And I couldn't get the paint off, so I just replaced the hinges. There's two sets of doors. There's like the bottom large doors, and then there's a top, like smaller cupboard. And the bottom doors, it worked out fine with the new hinges. And on the top doors... They don't close all the way. I tried to shim them. I've tried every damn thing. I don't even know. (laughs) And Kevin, what happened to you? So I bought like a freestanding pantry cabinet because my apartment has no storage at all. So it's like six feet tall and it has two doors that open from the center and they each have three hinges and painting seems like the culprit here because I took the doors off the hinges to paint it and then when I put the doors back on, they'd look terrible. (laughs) So they're not quite level and they don't meet at the middle properly. So the gap between them is kind of not noticeable at the bottom, but then it gets wider as you go up. And my solution has not been shimming. It's just been to like close them really hard with my hand and foot at the same time. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So, I mean, how common, Mark, are these sorts of hinge problems? I called my mom about this. She's fairly handy. And she was like, oh, doors, doors are hell. I don't know why you did that. Yeah, I think it's because there's a lot of variables involved with the door. Between the hinges, the door itself, your refinishing process that you do, a lot of times adding that coat of paint, it's adding an extra physical material to the wood itself. So Mm -hmm. you may have something that fit nice before, and now it's catching because you actually have more layers of paint there. You're giving it an opportunity to move. Wood is a product that just expands and contracts over time, and our job as furniture makers is to mitigate that movement and make sure it's minimized. But in the case of something that you're refinishing like that, those conditions have been met, but you're changing things. The other variable, of course, would come down to the hinges. And depending on the type of hinges, the age of the hinge, the placement of the hinge, you could have them bend and warp a little bit. You could also have a situation where you may have not mounted them perfectly in the same spot they were before. Now, most of these hinges are pre-drilled with a hole. So when you reattach your screw, there's actually a little bit of play there that you may not even realize as you're putting the screws back in. So let's say you put the screws back in in a different order than you took them apart. The hinge itself may be slightly skewed. That makes total to sense. A problem. Yeah. I noticed that when I put the doors back on, as I was tightening it, I could see that they seemed to line properly. And then as I was tightening the screws, I could see the hinges kind of shift as the yeah. screw bit yep. into them. And I was like, this might be trouble. Exactly. Yeah. And Kevin, you sent me one picture where I could actually see the layer of paint showing me that the hinge is not in the same position it was before. 
you could actually see a trace outline of where the hinge was placed previously, and now it's shifted to the right, it looks like, by like an eighth of an inch. So that kind of error can really add up. So that's what makes this a tricky thing to do. Yeah. So, I mean, once you've gotten yourself into the situation like Kevin and I have, what is the solution? How do you figure out how to go back to where you were? We just go buy a new cabinet. (laughs) (laughs) that's what i would do (laughs) well you've got a couple of solutions you can probably reposition the hinges that would be my first thing take the hinges off double check everything if you could see the history of where these hinges were attached before try to take a look at them and see if maybe they are shifted a little bit it's also really helpful when you take these doors apart if you number them put you know maybe a piece of masking tape on them to tell you which hinge went where Because if you took those three hinges off and then just put them back, you may have changed the order. And every one of those things can kind of contribute to this door not fitting properly. I'm sure I screwed that up. So in this case, this is a little bit more work, but you may want to fill some of the hinge holes and completely reposition the hinges and drill new holes for them. So the process I would do for that is, especially if it's an independent cabinet like Kevin's, I would probably take that pantry out, take the doors off, put the pantry on its back. Keep the hinges on the doors, then lay the door in place. So now gravity is working in your favor. You get the door in the perfect position and let the hinges go where they go. And if you see them in different positions, you'll you'll most likely notice the hinges will not be sitting over the previously drilled holes. So then you can just kind of fill those holes. You know, a little uh, screw hole like that is a perfect thing that you could fill with a little bamboo skewer or a small dowel that you could pick up at the big box store. Just cut a little piece off, put it in with a little bit of wood glue, that fills it up, and then you'll be able to kind of pre-drill and reposition those screws based on the door being in its perfect position. If I fill it in the way you're talking about, is there a chance that the screw, like drilling another hole so close to that one, it'll be loose? Or if the holes kind of overlap, will the screw will still be able to bite in, you know, the bamboo skewer? It's definitely not an ideal situation because you're kind of going into the end grain of your dowel. A lot of times I may use like a five-minute epoxy to put that dowel in there in the first place. And epoxy has a little bit more of a different qualities than typical wood glue. So it hardens and becomes this resin that if you do drill kind of adjacent to the previous hole, you may have it skew a little bit. It may not bite quite as well as it would if it was just all fresh wood, but it will most likely still work in conjunction with the 9, 12 other screws that are involved in holding this door in place. In my case, the hinges are the same size and they have the same number of screws in them, but I don't think they're as thick. And I think that was the problem is the hinge mortises are too deep. I tried scraping the paint (laughs) off the door. I tried repositioning them and it just was not working. And I can't lay it down because it's attached to the wall. And what I ended up doing, I shimmed out the doors using little clippings of playing cards because I read that Mm -hmm. you could do that online. It still doesn't close quite all the way. Maybe I should just send you a picture of this thing. But if it seems like your hinge mortise is too deep, is that a problem that's common? And how would you fix that? It's definitely a problem if you are buying a different hinge. The leaves on the hinge could very well be a different thickness. As soon as you put that into an existing mortise and it's not the right depth, you're going to have a skewed door. The barrel of the hinge is not going to be in its optimal position, so the rotation of the door is just going to be out of whack. So that is absolutely priority one, is to make sure it's nice and flush. You know, right. you have to get those to be flush. But, you know, as far as specifically with your case, pictures, you know, really, really help with this <laughs> stuff. <too. laughs> absolutely. Well, this is awesome. I think, Kevin, probably you're going to go try to do some of I'm definitely going to try and do this, yeah. yeah. And I'll send you some pictures, and then maybe I'll take an attempt as well, and we can come back on here eventually and tell our listeners how it worked. Yeah, that sounds good.
Cool. Well, thank you so much for talking to us and for your tips. Everybody, if you are listening and you want to check out some more cool tips from Mark, go to thewoodwhisperer.com and it's got some great videos there that you can check out. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, guys. Alex George has recently come back in the office from CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, and it seems like it's crazy. Like, what is it? It's not just booths. What's out there? Yeah, it's like if you've ever been to a car show, it's like that, except on a much huger scale. There's I don't even know the square footage size, but there are these three main halls that have all these different things set up. Like, there'll be Samsung will take over the something the size of two football fields with their TVs, with their phones and their washing machines, that kind of thing. And then the North Hall will have something like Hyundai will be showing off their new electric vehicle. Vehicle and they'll have an entire stage themselves dedicated to that. So it's just sprawling, and there's everything from that to tons of companies you've never heard of. A lot from China that you know none of us would have ever heard of that make you know kind of knockoff uh, Beats headphones, like everything like that. So it's Burt's, full spectrum. Burt's headphones. <laughs> Boots by Dre. Boots yeah. by Draw. <laughs> So when you go out there, you just walk around and look for cool stuff, or what do you do? Yeah, a lot of it is that it brings together a bunch of people from Silicon Valley, from New York, from places like Colorado that have a lot of stake in this industry, and everybody comes together. So it's time to meet with a lot of people and kind of talk off the record about what they're doing. But then you also get to see a whole bunch of stuff. So it used to be that you didn't see big companies, but Google came there for the first time. Companies like Amazon's Alexa division, they're not there specifically, but they are showing up in a whole bunch of different products that feature their technology. So you'll see a whole bunch of new Alexa devices, smart home devices. Yeah, I read that connected kitchens were pretty big this year. There were a couple new refrigerators that can tell you how to make something based on what's in your fridge. Ooh, right. The that Whirlpool seems like did a that. cool idea. It seems kind of useful, I guess. Yeah. Expensive, so. but useful. Yeah. There's the smart home stuff. The thing that they were really pushing this year was that it used to be like, hey, you had a smart washing machine that could tell your phone when the cycle was done. But the idea here this year is that it would all be synced up together. You could distribute power between different devices and know like when to intelligently run things so that they could use less energy, that kind of a thing. And the idea would be that somehow your washing machine would talk to your, that fridge in a meaningful way. So the question that everyone probably asked you of what you liked the best there, but what would you buy that you saw there? What are you most excited about that it might actually be reasonable to get? Since most of these things are kind of pie in the sky, this might exist in 10 years, or this is something that's not normal, like the TV that rolled up on itself. Right. Wait, what's a TV that rolled buy. up on itself? How, how do you already know all these things? I read Alex's work. Well, and, <laughs> and the work of some of the web guys on the site. And ah. it's also LG to this crazy TV that everyone was talking about. Okay. It's this uh, OLED TV. So OLED TVs are organic lighting mini diodes. Those are the best TVs you can get right now. It's this display thing that looks awesome. LG and Sony are the two makers of them, but LG had this one specifically that it emerges out of a little table, but then when it retracts, it rolls up like a blind like on a what? window. So, so it can cool. kind of bend that over like that. pretty neat. The whole idea is that, hey, look at what we can do. One thing that I saw really specifically that I really wanted to walk out there with was, so this is a company Anchor. They make really good batteries and cables and stuff like that. Really awesome stuff. So they're have these other divisions and there's one called nebula makes it's seriously the size of maybe like a tall boy beer can and it's a full-on projector and speaker and it's really bright and really loud it's wireless it's got hdmi i really would love to just have one of those is it hd yeah because yeah. sony used to have that little ultra short throw projector that you just take it outside take it with you and throw a movie up on it yeah that's the idea it looks like an alexa with a little camera it does it. yeah that's <laughs> the idea behind it basically that's pretty cool yeah yeah did yeah. that have a price was that a real product 
Three fifty. I'm excited that it's that cheap because all the short. Oh, Peter Martin wants one. Once probably will not buy. I get in trouble. <laughs> I can't bring these things home. So what else? Yeah, the other part too is one cool meeting I got was with the guy who's the head of Amazon Alexa, and he's the liaison between Amazon and companies like Ford and Toyota when they want to put them into new devices. So that's the only thing that you saw was like the new Toyotas were showing off that they just have Alexa built into it. You know, this idea of being able to have it do more than just play your podcast, or you know, actually have it turn up the heat, or you know, have everything be able to be completed by your voice really reliably which is what they're pretty much showing and being able to put it by say like a little thing that you put in your cigarette lighter and have that put alexa in your car that's pretty cool i think that's that was everywhere no joke there was a alexa enabled faucet i believe there was a shower head and there was also a uh, alexa enabled toilet too wow. so the idea being that you could just throw a voice assistant everything but this is pretty jetsonsy stuff though yeah. isn't it like being able to just walk around your house and be like flush my toilet turn on my <laughs> sink wash my clothes that's exactly the idea is that when you leave your house they like turn off the lights open the garage door close the garage door when you're in your car Alexa is everywhere. Yeah. It seems nice if it replaces pulling out your phone, pulling up the right app, doing like for our security system, if I come home and my boots are gross, I've turned it off outside, wait for it to say it's off. Be nice just to grab your phone and say, Alexa, turn off the security. Right. And then you're done. Well, the idea is that you wouldn't have to have your phone anywhere nearby. She's just listening. It's just, yeah, the microphones are everywhere. Which is not creepy at all. At (laughs) all. Yeah, the whole CES thing sounds like the Honeywell House of the Future from Epcot. You know what I mean? It sounds like it's really exciting and interesting, but also maybe a little scary. Yeah. You actually missed something fun while you were away at CES. We got a letter from a fan, Chris Kleinsmith, who we don't know if it's a guy or a girl. So we apologize to Chris if we guess wrong. If we guess wrong. I think we're guessing it's a guy. But Chris Kleinsmith did write that he is a big fan of the show. Yeah. And is a regular listener and loves Alex. I'm a little offended I was not mentioned, but Alex (laughs) is called out in multiple paragraphs for how great he is. So yeah, he writes that you are the freaking man. He thought when you were the tech editor, he was prepared for emotionless rambling from a bewildering speaker, and you are not that. Right back at you, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I've been called worse. <laughs> now, thanks, man. That goes a long way. I'm glad to know that my efforts are paying off, and at least for you. And I'm beating Peter. <laughs> That's what it's more about, yeah. <laughs> Most importantly, I'm beating Peter. Our power rankings, uh, I think you just get me a lot of points for that. So we're going to have to change the whiteboard that we have here. <laughs> it's now one to zero. <laughs> <laughs> so keep the letters coming, people. <laughs> it's time again for your favorite segment, At Facts. At Facts. I like this one. Yeah, except what's at? Well, it's like the at symbol, like that little, like the uh, A with the roundy round around it. Yeah. The roundy round around it. That's what it's called. It's a circle. That's your called first a at fact. Your first at fact. It's a circle. Actually, in other countries, people have all sorts of names for the at symbol. Let oh. me run you through a couple. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> so in Dutch, they call it the monkey's tail. In Czech, they call it roll mops, which are pickled like herrings that are rolled up into like little thingamajiggers and that's apparently a snack people have in finnish they call it the cat's tail uh-huh korean a snail hebrew a strudel because it looks like a cross section wow of a these are all really, so if you gave out your really email it'd be p martin strudel do they say com? that i have to strudel. think so like if you're, tra- if you're making sure that they're not actually writing out yeah yeah or whatever Hungarian, this is my favorite, is maggot. Ew. <laughs> That's even Not a big fan of the Jay internet. Jay Detweiler, maggot. Do we have a name for it? Like, you know, the ampersand for the and? So there's no one name for it. It's just sort of the at symbol, the at symbol. is what we call it, okay. or the at sign. And I read a bunch of articles about it. No one really knows, like, when it first came about, this symbol, but at least people were using it by the 16th century. Oh, my God. For email? Um, 
Sorry. That's why we invite you for the comic relief. <laughs> for the smart parts. <laughs> Most commonly, it was used by tradesmen as sort of a shorthand for at the rate of. So if you're telling people what the price of something is, you could say 12 at 1 lira. <laughs> like, <laughs> 12 at 1. I don't know what the 1600s were like. Help. <laughs> But after that, it sort of like declined and people weren't really using it. So the reason that it's in our email addresses is by the time email sort of came about in the 70s, that was a symbol that was on computers and on typewriters, but no one was really using it. Oh, it was nice. up for grabs. Ah. So if you tried using like the backslash or something like that, there might have been a lot of confusion, but no one was using the at symbol. So it could have easily just been like the little up carrot or some other yeah. little dumb symbol that we never use the, with a tilde. Yeah. <laughs> Jackie Detweiler tilde. <laughs> So it's sort of a random choice, but then makes sense because when you're sending something to a different like place, it could be like at at that yeah. place at that place. Yeah. Yeah. Monkey tail, right? And monkey tail, maggot. I'm gonna start using that. Jackie Detweiler maggot <laughs> at uh, Popular Mechanics. That's not my actual email address. Thank you. That has been AdFacts. AdFacts. Okay, so today, Jackie is not going to be the host. I am the host. For this segment, maybe not all of today. Well, I can't interview myself, so, so Peter Martin is jumping in here. I just don't know how to do the lead-in. <laughs> Welcome me. to the most useful podcast ever. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. This is Jacqueline <laughs> interviewing Jacqueline about Amaro. Hey. You've actually, you've been making booze. I have been making booze. And it's funny because I wanted to do like a homemade booze thing. Yeah, I feel like we're a very DIY magazine at Popular Mechanics, but I was Googling it and it's really not recommended it's to make gin right? in your house. <laughs> yeah, like you really can't like make vodka at home or you could probably, but the government really doesn't like it. And also it can be pretty dangerous. But this booze, it's a Maro, which is an Italian digestive. It can also be an aperitif. It's stuff like Campari. Digestive is after dinner? Digestive is after, <laughs> aperitif is before. So it can it's a drink. It's a drink. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever you're it's, ready. It's ridiculous. Campari is one. Fernet Branca, Chinar, you may see on cocktail menus. And basically what they are are liqueurs that are not very strong, but they are both sweet and bitter. So the bitterness is part of it. Amaro actually means bitter. So basically, you're, and Campari you're, is certainly bitter. And the way that they make it, these big Amaro houses in Europe, they basically just soak roots and herbs and citrus peels and stuff like that in strong liquor and then water it down. So you can do that in your house, like in a big bowl, and it's the same <laughs> thing. And you can make your own, and you can give them as gifts, and that's pretty cool. So, so do you start with a base liquor since you're not brewing your own? Or I guess you wouldn't brew a liquor. You don't have a still in your bathtub. I do not have a still in my bathtub yet. Uh, no, but I... <laughs> this goes well. <laughs> if all goes well, I'll be making bathtub gin in no time. No, you start with a base liquor. You want it to be strong enough to extract the flavors out of whatever you put in it. So you can use a vodka that's at least 100 proof. You can also use Everclear or I used something called Spiritus Rectificioni. Oh. <laughs> uh, which is <laughs> a one. Polish spirit. I live in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. I don't know. I think we've talked about this on this podcast, which is an old Polish neighborhood. So it's yeah. really easy to find this stuff. And it was also recommended 
on an Amaro recipe I found online. So I was like, oh, well, I definitely can get that. <laughs> if all you can find is Everclear or whatever, it doesn't matter if it's good. It just matters that it's strong as heck. You probably don't want a lot of flavor, right? If you're going to throw your own flavoring into it. Right. You don't. Like you vodka. want it to be a clear liquor. Yeah. You want it to basically be tequila. ethanol. No, yeah, not tequila. <laughs> no, like a vodka or a neutral grain spirit is what they okay. call it. So you take this and then you collect herbs. And this is like the part that I was nervous about almost because there's so much freedom. Like you can really put whatever the heck you want in these things. You're going off a general recipe, but not a specific put three sprigs of rosemary. You have to pick your own. What I did is I interviewed this guy. His name is Dave Willis. He's the head distiller at Bully Boy Distillery, which is a distillery that makes actual booze. (laughs) They actually distill things. But they also just started making like an American Amaro. And it's not out yet. It's not coming out till fall. But he was willing to kind of walk me through it and be like, okay, you don't want to use more than 10 grams of cloves. Let me just tell you, you know, like that kind of thing. So I I used some of his advice and I spent a lot of time Googling how the heck to make Amaro online and kind of made a synthesis of everything. So the main thing is you have to put in something that's bitter because this thing has to be bitter. (laughs) So you can use, there's bittering herbs or roots. They're usually roots and barks because I guess those things tend to be bitter. Gentian root is one of them. Chinchona bark. I really felt like a witch. It was kind of fun. I was like, (laughs) oh, like bubble and brewing. You know, you can also find a lot of these on Amazon. So you can do that. If you have like a hipster witchy root shop somewhere around you, they might have them there as well. So the main bittering herbs, gentian root, chinchona bark, wormwood, and quassia bark are all bittering agents and they will make your thing bitter. They don't really have much flavor. Chinchona bark, I believe, is the one that's in tonic and wormwood is in absinthe. So oh, just, I knew I'd heard of that one. Yes. So anyway, these are all things that are commonly used in liquors. And in my recipe, I ended up putting in things like allspice and cardamom and cloves. And what Dave Willis told me is you don't want to do a ton of stuff because you want it to be kind of balanced. He said probably no more than 20 things. <laughs> that seems like a lot. I, which does, it does. In fact, I put about 12 or 13 in ours. And I was like, man, like there's so many things in this. So I love grapefruit. So I went with uh, about 15 grams of grapefruit peels. He also told me to get a gram scale that is accurate to the 10th of a gram. So you were shooting for certain quantities. He told me like, don't put more than five grams of cloves in. He also said, if you think anything's going to extract really quickly and be really strong, like cloves or licorice or things like that, juniper berries, he's like, put it in first and let it get its flavor and you kind of taste it, which is dangerous because it's very strong. (laughs) Tastes Uh, great. great. (laughs) But you taste it and then you're like, oh, this is getting too clovey. You strain those out and then you can put your lighter stuff in. And that way, it's not like you put everything in and you're like, oh, heck, this is getting too clovey. Right. You know, cloves, he specifically warned me about those. (laughs) That's why I keep saying that. Be careful with cloves. Yeah. So I wanted to be pretty grapefruity. So I put the most, I put 15 grams of grapefruit in and then just didn't put as many grams of anything else, you know, just kind of kept it lower. And then I just did it by sight. Honestly, I was like, let's try this. Let's try. I mean, it's kind of hard to screw up, I guess. Right. Especially if you're putting in things that taste good. Right. So I went with a bunch of like mulling spices, allspice, cardamom. Seems delicious. Ginger, rosemary, rosemary all that kind of stuff. And I was like, these things, if, if you see them together in recipes, then they probably will work together. Right. And so then what you do is you leave them. And if you've got a strong enough booze, I mean, this will extract in about a week. I did three days with like the cloves and the bittering agents and all that stuff, then strained that out, then did six days with like the lighter things. And the, this recipe will be on popularmechanics.com and also in our April issue. So if you want to get some... Put that on your calendar. <laughs> I know, it's, it'll be a while, but if you try it yourself and really screw it up, <laughs> we will have a recipe for you shortly. And basically, once you strain everything out, what you have is a really strong liquor with a flavor in it. And it might even smell a little weird, like almost bad, because it's just so strong. What you want to do is make simple syrup, which is equal parts sugar and water. You make it in a 
saucepan, let it cool. And then you pour that in. You want to know what your recipe is because if you want to duplicate it, you want to know how the heck much you put in there. But I would actually say maybe put in like 100 milliliters at a time at first because if you think about it, if it's 750 milliliters of 100% alcohol, you're going to need to put at least 750 milliliters in just a bit. You know, so it's like once you think it's sweet enough, you can start just putting in straight distilled water. I was going to ask because that seems like it would start to get really sweet. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You basically have simple syrup and water and you just kind of blend it all together until you got something you like the taste of. And the reason you're using measuring cups and droppers is so you know what you did. If you want to make it again, you can. But yeah, it made me feel like a witch slash bootlegger. So if that's on your New Year <laughs> to-do list, get get on it because it's really fun. You'll probably get drunk. We should have you on the show again. <laughs> For those of you who do read Popular Mechanics, which I hope is all of you because it's the magazine we make and it's very similar to our podcast here, which I think you guys also enjoy. It has pictures. It does have pictures. You probably noticed that our January-February issue is our greatest hits issue. And for that, we spent a lot of time. I think the entire office was like deep in old archival oh, books. Yeah. It was. It smelled like a library <laughs> in here. It was crazy. And Kevin, he was like the czar of the greatest hits issue, I feel like. Yeah, it started out with, oh yeah, I'll look through the 40s. And then it became everybody from every decade. Send me everything you found. <laughs> Send Kevin everything you found. <laughs> yeah. And Kevin will sort through it all. And so some of these, we did some features that we reported in the past. We kind of updated them. And it's amazing the stuff that we've covered over the years. But I think the most interesting part was the amount of useful information we've had in our magazine over the years. And so I was wondering if you had any tips that you Um, found. I mean, we did a whole organize everything spread. We did a whole spread on boats. The boats thing was cool. It basically just teaches you how to navigate a small boat. Something you'd go fishing in with like an outboard motor. Mm -hmm. But there was instructions like, for example, on how to leave the dock so that you have visibility. And if any other boat comes around, it'll see you and you can see it. But I thought the coolest thing there was that it said, when you're just learning how to steer the boat, you tie a short length of rope, like maybe five feet between the front of your boat and the dock. And then you push out so the boat is basically facing like you could drive it right into the dock. And you go just slow enough that you're not actually going to drive forward, but you can turn the motor left and right and get used to how the steering works while you're still like in a safe place. Like attached. Oh, that's yeah. A great which I would idea. never have thought of as a way to. <laughs> yeah. So the rope on the dock is pretty useful. That's a great idea. We had one spread that was just like a bunch of old stuff that we found that was kind of interesting and funny now. But this one was like sort of actually useful. I don't know when I'm going to test this out, but we had actually done a feature. It was in the 60s about how to cook food on your engine. You at least have a car. That's stuff. I do have a car. Yeah. (laughs) I don't have a car. Yeah. Which I have to say, like growing up, we knew this was a thing that people did. Like my friends and I would talk about things we could cook on our car and I've never actually done it. But in the article, it talked about like, oh, if you want to fully cook a hamburger, that's probably like 50 miles. We put a recipe for a stew and they're like, this is a pretty long trip before you get the stew done. <laughs> but so set it on your engine and drive 50 miles and that should give you enough heat. That's like, yeah, that'll oh, cook you, the meat. Do you yeah. tape it to your engine? Like, how do you get it on there? Pretty much everything to say, wrap it in foil and then use like wire t- to uh, just tie it down. Oh, but you're getting like road dirt on it. I don't Think know. Of all the that's why you put it in foil. <laughs> And also, like, if you're like a hot dog, yeah, because there's so much healthy stuff inside the hot dog already. Who cares there's a little bit of exhaust? Who cares there's a little bit of exhaust and road yeah. dirt and gunk on it? Some of the ones that I like, uh, there's this whole organize everything spread that is funny because it's kind of like clearly we've all been trying to keep things organized forever. But there were some cool ones in there. To hang saws teeth in, which I guess if you hang your saws flat, you're taking up extra space. So you could just like hang them kind of like clothes, like all. In oh, them yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Which seemed like a cool idea. For all of your saws. For all your, well, if you have a, well, but you could do it with a lot of tools. <laughs> you know true. what I mean? Like I always think that about like kitchen knives when people have those like mounted magnet racks and they put their kitchen knives up in the kitchen. I'm like, God, that is such a brilliant idea. 
Yeah. But it doesn't dull the blade because it's not going into the wood. I'm going to give you guys a secret one that is not in the issue. Bonus. Well, because I looked through the 1930s. That was the decade that I had. And this one didn't make it, Kevin. <laughs> but it was uh, it wasn't an organized one, but it was to hide jewels. So to hide things from people who like might break into your apartment if you have some really secret things. It was you take your door, you have your door, and you drill a hole in the top of it. So the very top of the door and then you can put like if you have serious valuables you put them in the top of the door like and then that. no one ever knows they're in there there was that's actually a like secret spot i remember that that was awesome and there was also i think it was james found something from i think he had the 70s james would have, james the, 70s. Would have the 70s yeah <laughs> but it was like nine places to hide things in your house and it was all things like that like it was like how to hide something behind like the faceplate of your outlet but it was all like the oh, most brilliant. clever hiding spots which i kind of yeah. feel like we could do now because there's probably some things that aren't like I don't know, the junction boxes in your house are different than they used to be. But if we could totally just call up a bunch of people and find little places like cool that. Things like I mean, that, that's yeah. the things I hadn't even really thought about it, but it's like you're always getting for Christmas or whatever those little books that you can open. It's like you can also store your valuables in here or there's <laughs> yeah. some like safe or whatever. It's like a thief is never going to think to look at the top of your door. Like it's just granted. Well, now that we've told everyone. Now we've told everyone. Yeah. If you're a thief, stop listening. Stop listening right now. <laughs> granted, it would have to be something you don't use very often and you shouldn't forget it when you move. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that is a yeah. problem. I mean, I feel like I'm the queen of... Yeah, don't put your Bitcoins in there. I put it somewhere safe, and then that's <laughs> yeah. your Bitcoins. Your physical Bitcoins. <laughs> and then, Peter Martin, did you find anything that Kevin didn't put in? Oh, I found stuff Kevin did put in. Oh, that's man. That's how good I am. Beating yeah. me. Uh, I'm better friends with him. I, well, that's true. Yeah. It's not something I necessarily could use, but we had a thing back in 1975 for how to build a hydraulic press so that you can actually bend your own metal at home. Whoa, that's that was cool. awesome. So check that out in the magazine because I'm not going to try to describe <laughs> I'm not how it actually works. Uh, yeah, Peter's our project guy, which pro- our projects are pretty complicated, but it was pretty cool. I think this whole issue was pretty cool. I think we should do it again. What do you yeah. think, Kevin? What do you think, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> we'll give him a little time to sort of wait calm a year. down. And wait a year. Good. Yeah, try and make me forget. <laughs> For this week's testing table, everyone has cold feet. <laughs> yes. Or we did last that was week. Funny. <laughs> I don't anymore. But now you don't have cold feet. We're testing slippers. This started because Peter Martin had a pair of slippers that he was talking about a bunch. And then suddenly Lara got really into a pair of slippers. So then we were like, you know what? <laughs> let's just do a slippers testing table. Yes. So let's start with, I guess, Peter. Sure. Since you started this whole let's slipper mess. The slipper trend. The slipper mechanics. trend mess. What slippers are you into or not into? I am fully into these slippers. I, I've never loved slippers like I love these slippers. Oh my God. That's really saying something. I've never tried slippers slippers before so maybe i would have loved all slippers yeah but. i'm kind of in the same boat not a slipper person yeah. but i yeah, now, i think i am a slipper person so i tried they're called glare ups g-l-e-r-u-p-s i bought mine from huckberry which that sounds like a type of furniture from ikea <laughs> like, yeah mean, you buy like the glare up set the oh, company's well, from denmark so that's go. why and they're, they're basically just like really thick wool shoes with a little sole on the bottom so you can walk around the house but so i got the slip-ons they uh, don't have a heel on them, so you just slide your foot right in. They also have ankle boots and something else. They're 95 bucks, and I'm cheap, so I was a little skeptical. Why should I spend this much on slippers when I could get, like, Dearborns that my mom has for $25? Uh-huh. Maybe it's not Dearborn, but there's deer in the name. Okay. But I love them. They're so warm. A lesson I learned, don't wear socks with slippers. They're warmer without socks. Really? Because the wool was right against my foot. Because at first I thought, we have a freezing living room, and my feet are always cold, and so I always put on like the biggest hiking socks that I have. And so I thought, I'm going to put those inside these, and it's going to be And it's going to be like my feet are inside a toaster oven. It was not. <laughs> 
and I took them off. One, they're more comfortable because then the shoes fit better. But uh, yeah, still very warm. Wait, so you have become a recent slipper convert because your floor is cold? Because yeah, your apartment's cold? The whole living room and kitchen is so cold. When we're watching TV, we each have our own blankets. Oh, it's, wow. <laughs> it's really That's really bad. serious. We're on a story for the magazine to try to fix it. Oh, that's good. Oh, right, because you own your apartment, so you got to really try to fix that. They're going to bring in a thermal camera and help us figure out where all the gaps are. Oh, nice. Yeah, I just text my landlord. I'm like, it's cold help. (laughs) That's what I do. So glare-ups, slip-ons, $95. Yes, many colors. You love them. I got a nice light heather gray. (laughs) Because <laughs> you also don't want ugly slippers. Even yeah, if you're right. in the house, if somebody comes over, you don't want like the huge puppy, Do you wear these on the couch? Things. Yes, because they don't go outside, so there's nothing that bad on the bottoms of them. Oh. I wear them under my blanket on the couch sometimes, too, when it's really cold. Wow. Okay. And then, Lara, what did you try? Okay, just looking at the photo of what Peter has, actually what I tried was very similar, but a slightly different concept. So I've been getting these targeted Facebook ads for this company called Mojave's and it's a wool slipper. But the big gimmick with Mojave's is that it's supposed to have a rubber sole that you can attach and detach to the bottom of the shoe so that if you need to go take the garbage out, you can like click on the rubber sole and you have your outdoor sole and your indoor sole. Seems like a smart idea. Yes, it does seem like a smart idea. And (laughs) however... We're getting a little sense of where this might be going. Okay, so... The slipper itself is a nice slipper, like the wool slipper. It's got nice fur inside. But the whole concept of putting this sole on it is just bogus. It's like not helpful at all. Does it not hold on the shoe or does it? So when you look at it online, they only ever photograph them from the outside edge. And the outside edge of this rubber sole that you put on it comes up, I would say, like a centimeter above the sole of the wool slipper. So that offers some nice protection. But if you look at it from the side of your foot where your big toe is. Like the arch. Yes, from the arch of your foot, there is like no edge that comes up. It's just a flat sole. And the fact that it's designed like that kind of infuriates me because if you are putting a rubber sole on your shoe so your foot doesn't get dirty, having no protection on that inside of your Uh, foot is like, if you stepped in anything, you're going to get the inside part of right. the also, shoe Also, if dirty. you have flat feet or you pronate or any of those things, you right. roll over onto your arches, you're basically walking on your slipper anyway. Right. So right. what I had kind of pictured was something with a rim all the way around. And like, that's a great idea because then your shoe is protected. Your comfy wool slipper isn't going to get wet or muddy or dirty. Like we live in New York City. It's dirty everywhere here outside. I think it's dirty even inside my apartment. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> is. True. Yeah, that too. Just your apartment. <laughs> and like, it sort of defeats the whole purpose. So it's a cute idea, but in reality, it doesn't stay on that well. It doesn't protect your slipper that much. It's just sort of a novelty. And also it looks kind of stupid. Really? Yeah. It's important. I would never wear this out somewhere because it's like you've got half a sole on your (laughs) shoe. We're like, what's wrong with your shoes? Right. Maybe that's a good thing, though, because as a society, maybe we shouldn't get to the point where we wear our slippers out. Yeah, that's true. So, like, the slipper itself, it's warm. It's comfortable. I don't know. Before this, I would just wear wool socks with a pair of Crocs. Was it better looking than that? (laughs) (laughs) Better better looking? Not nearly as comfortable. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of amazing that we've gotten to a point where we have self-driving cars and, like, computers and supercomputers, but we haven't fixed the indoor-outdoor slipper problem (laughs) yet somehow. But that's sad to hear, but hopefully somebody will take it up and take it all the way. What are these ones called again? They're called 
called Mahabis, and I guess the reason why I'm so mad about them is that they retail for $110, which is like I expect something good. I would never spend $110 on a pair of slippers, and especially not these slippers. Like if they were 20 bucks, sure, buy them, but 110. Well, can I tell you that if you want a slipper that goes outside, Glare Ups makes a special camp sole, $40 more, and then it has a rubberized bottom. So See? You there you go. So you could just get two pairs of Glare Ups. It's true. Your feet need never be bare. It'd be perfect. There you go. That's our show, y'all. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters, Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. While you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks of all sorts, you should check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.